The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. Glad to be back. I guess I was here three weeks ago. Still in vacation mode. I feel like I'm in vacation mode, <laughs> though I haven't been. Working with you guys is no vacation. I just want you to know that. Well, again, good morning. Uh, here with me today is Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, uh, good to see you. Yeah, good to be here. Certified financial planners Ryan Repko and David Rudy. Good morning. I'm, good morning. I know I'm supposed to say certified financial planner professionals. Which is so awkward. I, I know <laughs> it is. Oh, it comes out hard. Uh, you can call in with your questions to 356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 3515357. You can also email your questions to talk at WDWS. We also want to welcome those turning in on Facebook Live. And we just heard Facebook Live. Uh, maybe we'll get some money, right? <laughs> if you get, of course, you probably have to have an account that says. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. I'm going to start out, Ryan, you're our compliance officer, so ear, earmuffs. I just want to thank everybody. <laughs> you know, we're not making a big deal or writing commercials about it, but I do want to take a moment to thank people for voting us the number one. And I'm going to have a caveat, Ryan, so uh, voting us the number one investment firm in the Central Illinois People's Choice Awards. But then I have to go on and say you really shouldn't pick an advisor based on something like that. So I know that sounds strange that I would say that, but I want to acknowledge the fact that people went out of their way to vote us as number one. Um, and in all fairness, that doesn't mean that we're necessarily sure. the best returns or the the best for people's clients. It's just it's kind of a popularity contest. So let's call it for what it is. It's not a basis to choose a financial advisor. But again, just to acknowledge the being chosen number one, it makes me feel good. Maybe it's because I'm going to be 60 in November, and finally something good's happened to me. Wow, <laughs> I can't believe you're admitting that on the air. So are you happy the way I uh, disclosed that and said, you know, don't pick people because they're just ranked number one? Now, I think in some fields, it's probably appropriate, you know, one of the roofers and things like that are number one. Maybe that maybe that does mean that those are the ones you should choose. So sorry about that. Hmm. Probably clumsy for you guys to hear me <laughs> trunk through that. <laughs> I think it's nice to acknowledge that. Thank people for voting us that way. Well, guys, uh, Fred, we'll, actually, let's... let's we won't go into this yet. Why? Um, well, it seems like up until, oh, this morning at about 6 o'clock in the morning, everybody's biggest fears we've got a recession starting tomorrow. It's, just, it's amazing right. how uh, psychology changes on a dime. And it's, here we were yesterday, maybe 4% from all-time highs. And once again, it's existential terror announced. And I don't know how investors make – it makes me realize why human nature – uh, makes it so tough to be a successful investor when you're bombarded by basically schizophrenic financial media. Right. And it's also a, a more volatile s situation than the last uh, month or two compared to the past. But, again, that kind of volatility is something you have to expect. But, again, it's, it's, it's a, a kind of uh, difficult situation now. Everyone talks about uncertainty being a problem for uh, investments and not 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 the kind of investors we're talking about, but building sure. a new factory or something of that sort. But that's certainly the case now. If you're uh, an American manufacturer and uh, you said, should I build a factory because business in China is going to come here, right. it might be that way today. It might not be tomorrow. So it's very difficult to make any kind of long-term plans in, in that kind of environment. And all stock market investors are trying to do is decide what the future is worth right. today, you know, future earnings, et cetera. Right. Uh, and then just on a dime, you know, we get a tweet, uh, and probably was a tweet, I don't know, that yeah. now maybe these tariffs that were supposed to start, I think, towards the beginning of September yeah. have been delayed till December, and maybe there's some relief for Apple. And, uh, you know, as if it really has anything to do with anything. And yeah, it, another example is the uh, uh, one-fourth of a percent change in the uh, in the. Uh, uh, interest rate from the Fed. I mean, that, that's so minute that it can't have any any real impact, but it was kind of a signal for people. So things are, are driven by uh, changes that are probably insignificant and, and uh, intrinsically insignificant. It's just amazing how quickly it turns on a dime. But, you know, I try to remind people and investors that are going to own the rate companies of America and the world, look, 
fluctuation, uh, volatility is your friend. It, it, it fluctuates around a permanent rising uptrend. And if it, didn't, if, if it didn't fluctuate, if it didn't crash every now and then, if stock returns were guaranteed, uh, they'd be so overpriced. Mm-hmm. And part of what keeps things from getting, and probably creates bubbles, but in some way there's these limits to within reason because there is that risk that uh, I, I may suffer a sudden 20 or 30 or 40% temporary decline. I won't call it a loss, but the, the financial media would call it a loss. Let's call it a temporary decline along the permanent uptrend. It's a necessary ingredient for if you're reaching for higher expected returns for stocks. Uh, interest rates have now, you know, yeah. it wasn't six months ago that interest rates were going to be out of runaway train on the upside, right. and suddenly we're back to a 1.7% 10-year treasury, and the yield on the standard imports 500, the dividend yield's probably closer yeah. to 2%, so you can actually earn more. I'm not. It's not a suggestion to go out and buy as an alternative right. to treasuries, but... Yeah, a new, a new uh, situation. We, we had negative interest rates and short-term rates in some foreign countries, but now they're actually long-term negative interest rates. So people are investing money for 10 years with basically zero return. So it's a, a different kind of world. And much of the world is uh, even lower or even has negative interest rates. There was a bank in Denmark that's now making yeah. negative interest rate mortgages. Right. In other words, I guess Maybe that means they're assuming they'll take, rather take a small loss than maybe expose themselves to bigger losses by locking in, you know, actually pay you to take a loan. It's really, right. that's a Well, paying our money for even lower, even a lower negative rate there. All right. right. So in the backdrop of that, the, our uh, a 10-year treasury at 1.7 or whatever, at his, near historical lows, it seems like there would be a lot of gravity against rising interest rates in a yeah. world that is basically much lower or even negative interest rates uh, right. around the globe. I don't want to overplay that. It's not everybody, but there's a, certainly a good number of countries that have negative interest rates. Well, it'll be interesting to see whether the banks come down with uh, CD rates because they've been creeping up a little bit, and now they'll probably go back to where they were, which is very, relatively close to zero. Right, and so for people that might have locked in a two- or three- or four-year rate a month ago or two months ago, uh, speaking of which, uh, mortgage rates are almost as low as I've ever seen them. Not quite at historical lows, but at least last week they were around 3.5%, uh, uh, roughly. And you start thinking about that, that that's kicking off a refinance boom. Uh, I also read something that it, it it's much quicker now to get them, and I, I think I have it or had it somewhere. Uh, let's see. I think, no, that's different. Um, I saw a chart that showed instead of like 55 days, I may be wrong here, but it's not, not by much. Uh, you know, four, five, six years ago, it might have taken 55, 60 days. Now it's taking somewhere like somewhere around 40 days. Uh, so it's becoming easier. So I think people have to think about their, uh, their debt as an asset too, or in, in the same terms kind of as an asset, something to be managed. And if you're sitting in a 4% or a 4 and a quarter or a 4.5% mortgage, they were 4.5% not that long ago, guys. And suddenly you can go to a 3.5%-ish 30-year mortgage, uh, something people ought to look at take advantage of. I know I called your brother, David, or I text uh, Paul and said, hey, I think you're at 4 and a quarter or 45 Go in and, and refinance. And hopefully he was smart enough to do that. I bet he is. He's pretty frugal. <laughs> I'm sure he's listening, wondering. <clears throat> hmm. So it's just interesting, Fred. Uh, I, I don't really uh, how investors they should just ignore most of what's going on. It seems like from the pundits on the CNBC world and things like that. It would uh, seem to me. Uh, I had occasion this last <clears throat> week to uh, talk to people I usually uh, uh, don't see, and it's strange how or, or surprising to me how. Uh, all the misinformation around still exists. Uh, people are talking about, um, I like to invest in my own stock, not by mutual funds, because I like to sure. choose the, yeah. uh, I have a bit, and other people say, well, I like to invest in an actively managed fund because they have really smart uh, managers right. who are doing things. And some people are saying, well, uh, uh, I have a friend who earned uh, doubled his money in two years. And right. So uh, even though we talk about the kind of the main mainstream core investing kind of idea, there's still a lot of weird... Uh, ideas around it. Well, I think it's fact it's still, I mean, if you look at active management, which to me is kind of weird, uh, that's kind of an exaggeration, but not really, but it's, it's, there's so much data that shows, you know, trying to pick managers that are going to outperform is such a loser's game that, but yet the majority of mm-hmm. people still play that game. Yeah, I remember mm-hmm. when I talked to 
did really well. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they, they don't uh, calculate their uh, return in a, in a very precise way, but they always uh, were extremely good investors. And Dave, one, one of the things – go ahead, Dave. I was going to say, Daniel and I always joke <coughs> about that because, you know, sometimes when we're talking to people, if they're, you know, the type of people who invest their own money, maybe they're picking stocks or whatever, and they hear you're a financial advisor, a lot of times they'll start talking to you about it, and almost always the wording is – I do pretty well for myself. It's like super vague. You can tell, like you said, they never actually track their like compound return over time. And it's always like, well, compared to what? Have you actually compared right. it to what you could just do with a low-cost index fund? Yeah, it's kind of like uh, at what cost, uh, where's the evidence, and compared to what? <laughs> you right. know? They always leave those out. And it really sounds like what people that walking in the casino say, oh, I generally do pretty well in the you know, casino. Right. <clears throat> and something's just hard, you know. Some things are just counterintuitive. The, the the idea that I can go out and buy an index fund that isn't even managed by a person; it's managed by a computer. That all it does is simply track an index, is counterintuitive in a world where we're taught the harder you work, the smarter you work, the better your results uh, in the aggregate. And this is one area where it just doesn't seem to work out. Um, well, we're also starting to hear, guys. I wonder what your take on it. If you're hearing it like I am, or maybe you're hearing it too, Fred is. Well, why not just buy the S&P 500? And when I say the S&P 500, I'm talking about the Standard & Poor's 500 index, which there are mutual funds that, because you can't buy the index itself, but there are mutual funds that basically mimic, the, mimic that index for next to nothing in cost. And all I can say is the last time I was getting questions like that, almost as if, well, why would anybody hire a financial advisor? Why wouldn't I just buy the S Standard & Poor's 500 index fund? Hmm. And it just reminds me, Fred, back in the 90s, in the mid to late 90s, that's exactly what the, well, it morphed into, why shouldn't I buy the NASDAQ 100 index, right. but it was basically the S&P 5. And it's because over the last 10 years, it's been the dominant uh, asset class compared to almost anything else. And that happens in there, and that's not unusual at all. Uh, but these things tend to cycle. And... You know, that it really implies that, well, why, why not just buy the largest companies in the U.S. and forget everything else around the globe, the other 12 or 13 or 14,000 companies, the different themes, uh, the small companies, the large companies, value, growth, uh, merging market, all around the globe. And, uh, but that's starting to creep into conversations. Yeah, it's the warning you always give that past uh, returns don't that predict the future. So, again, if you had to go back five or ten years, that would be a good strategy but you didn't know that five or 10 years ago. Right, and in my research, uh, going back, looking at about the last 12 decades, eight out of 12 decades, an equal-weighted world global portfolio would have done better than the Standard & Poor's 500 Index. But think about the last time people were saying that. It was late 90s. Uh, it was before 10 years of the lost decade where the Standard & Poor's 500 Index total return was down 10%. So if you had $100,000, you ended up the 10-year period roughly with 90,000. That on the front end of retirement can be ruinous almost. Uh, but yet during that same decade, emerging markets, international stocks were up somewhere 60, 70, 80%. Uh, these things cycle like that. And then you also said that just before one of the worst 20 year periods. So now if you don't just take the lost decade, you go the last 20 years as of today, the, the return on the standard Poor's 500 index has been below 6% per year. Now, to give that some backdrop and perspective, uh, the average historical compounded annual rate of return has been 10%, for approximately 10%, really close to 10%, a little bit over it. Uh, that's extra extraordinary, and we're going to get into that a little bit today. Does that mean anything? I wrote a blog about it uh, called something uh, extremely rare just happened. You can see it on RudyWealth.com. I draw my own conclusions, and I'm going to add something to that blog, but uh, we're, we're, people are starting to get a little squirrely in that regard. Do you guys catch any of that? I would say definitely, and I think people need to remember, too, that the S&P 500 is really only one asset class. I think you hear 500 companies, and you think, oh, I own a diversified investment, but they're all large U.S. companies, and there have been times where like in you know the late 90s, early 2000s, where there was a big decline in the S&P 500, but the other asset classes didn't decline nearly as much. Right. So anytime you concentrate your portfolio in one <clears throat> asset class, you're 
worst case scenarios are going to be a lot worse than if you were diversified across a bunch of different asset classes. Right. Diversification is your friend. Uh, but sometimes diversification works when you wish it wouldn't. And look, I've noticed all the uh, you know, all the major guys on the radio, uh, the Rick Edelmans of the world that's on and, and nationally syndicated, a lot, a lot of the others that have pretty significant followings. And maybe sometimes it's just a blog post. You know, they're all sort of saying, hey, you know, yeah, our performance is not as good as the Standard Poor's 500 over the last block of time. Um, but this isn't unusual and certainly doesn't make a case uh, for lack of diversification. Now, within that Standard Poor's 500 index fund, you're certainly well diversified in, as far as the asset class itself. But you're not, you're, you're avoiding the potential uh, diversification benefits of adding other asset classes. So, yeah. uh, Also, again, it doesn't uh, predict the future. The same idea, uh, people are, are saying that uh, you know, pension funds could have done, done better in the last 10 right. years by just uh, buying the S&P 500 and, um, and a bond fund, a bond fund a bond and uh, do better than all the esoteric and costly maneuvers. And it's true, but no one knows whether it's true for the next 10 years or not. You know, uh, most pension funds, if they were globally diversified, let's just say they give them the benefit of the doubt and they weren't even in all these alternative investments, which they are, but assuming yeah. that, they would be underperforming a standard 60-40 portfolio using this standard Poor's 500 index as the, as the stock part portion of the asset class. Uh, it doesn't mean anything. It just means they're more diversified, and that's just the deal. Mm -hmm. Some people can't deal with the deal, and, they always, and they're always chasing their tail. What they're really chasing is they're letting the recency bias of what's happened in the last three or four or five years drive their portfolios over the next 10 or 20 years, and it's a classic mistake. I see it for 35 years. I've seen it over and over again. Even though there's more information at hand, you know, all the information you'd ever want to know about investing is at hand. It hasn't changed one bit in 35 years as far as people still making that classic mistake of chasing recent performance of the hot asset class. Well, and I think 10 years feels like such a long time to people. In human terms, it is a long time. It's, you know, an eighth or ninth of your life for most people. Uh, it just seems like that should be meaningful, I guess. When right. you, you look at 10 years, it's like, oh, you, you would think you'd be able to draw conclusions from 10 years, a decade of performance. But it really is completely meaningless and tells you nothing about the future uh, in investment terms. It's just not, it's not helpful. In fact, it's almost a perverse indicator, though not perfect. It's not, it's not really right. usable, but it's almost a cruel uh, trick it plays on investors, knowing that investors mm -hmm. will look at a five or a 10 year period and draw those conclusions and then map their path of the future based on the past three or four or five, yeah. 10 years. On the other hand, though, it's um, actually sort of good that, that, uh, you didn't need that uh, buffer. So, again, you're, you're taking a little bit lower return by being widely diversified in most cases, but you're obviously getting a lot of stability. So it's like buying insurance, and uh, and uh, you're not unhappy when your house doesn't burn down. You're happy that it's still there, even though you paid the insurance. Right. Because you're, you you don't want things to happen, you know, bad things to happen, just because you're protecting yourself against the bad things. You're just trying to reduce the what they're called fat tail events. They're yeah. big events that have a disproportionate impact on your life, and putting your money in one asset class just exposes you to more of that risk. But investors, being human, uh, of course, draw conclusions after a five or a ten year period. Uh, they're frankly are quite harmful to their health. I think one thing that goes against diversification is you can rarely go to your your friend's house and go to the barbecue and talk about how well my diversification strategies work and I shot the <laughs> lights out with diversification this year and, and that's never going to be the case it's not designed to do so it's designed to essentially smooth out the highs and the lows so that you're never overbalanced in one particular sector and you know that there goes the uh, the social psychology side of investing is you don't get to brag so much as the guy who overweights and puts all the eggs in one basket and possibly shoots the lights out or in most cases probably is going to have an underperforming portfolio yeah. relative to one that's diversified. Yeah. And the, the same idea, uh, people who have rebalanced the last five or ten years with the stock market uh, being really strong actually are worse off uh, because they bought bonds instead of stocks, but they, they got that security. In the meantime, they still have that security they wouldn't have. Yeah, as long, as long as the central limit theorem works uh, and Jensen's equality you know, is still kind of a law, it makes sense to be as diversified as you can, within reason. Uh, and then there's, there's no real right answer there, guys, right? I mean, some people are into commodities and think that should be part of it. We don't. 
Uh, but those are kind of at the you know the the sideline issues. But uh, I prefer to take a global approach as opposed to just one asset class. And of course, you know we don't have to look back. Uh, other than if you were a Japanese investor in the late uh, '80s, uh, the conclusions you would have drawn would have been why would you invest anywhere but Japanese stocks compared to U.S. stocks? It was not even close. It was mm-hmm. a slaughter. The the dip the performance of the Japanese stock market was multiples of the total return uh, of the U.S. market. And last I looked, it's still lower than it was in 1989. That is the Nikkei average. So it was a complete disaster for Japanese investors to invest all of their money in there. And that Japan was no slouch. It wasn't a ba- was not a banana republic. It was a major economy. And investors were, it was a disaster for investors that that were the Japanese investors that put all their money in the Japanese stock market as opposed to being a taking a globally diversified. It's happened historically, Fred, over and over right. again. We've and seen yeah, you have to be away. careful about uh, diversity. Diversity is a complicated thing. Just having a bunch of different mutual funds doesn't make you diverse necessarily. You have to have ones that are not correlated with each other. So, all right, we're going to go. I'm going to try to. I'm rusty. I'm going to go to John on one. John, are you there? Yes, I am. Yes, sir. How can we help you today? Uh, I've got two questions. Yes, sir. One is uh, talking about diversification. What do I consider my REIT fund? Is that a stock? Certainly not a bond. How do I, in the world of my assets, yeah, where, where does it fit where in? Does that fall? Yeah, I I always count it towards the stock allocation. If you just look at the expected return and the level of of risk or volatility, it's very similar to stocks, but it's not perfectly correlated to like publicly traded companies. It is real estate underlying that fund. Um, so it is. It can be a good diversifier for a portfolio. But from a big picture, stocks versus bonds, risk kind of return standpoint, I count it as part of the stock allocation. And, and I right. like I like to think of it as more in line with small value stocks too. Yep. I, I think so. I would definitely, uh, even though it, they tend to have a pretty high income component of the total return, it's it's tempting to for some people to think, well, maybe that's bond like characteristic. So maybe it's a hybrid, and it's it's really not. It tends to be. I would factor it in as just another asset class of stocks. And as an aside, of our U.S. Uh, portion, it's ten percent of our U.S. portion. Uh, just to show you that we respect that asset class and we do consider that a diversifier. All right. Uh, one more question if there's time. Sure, plenty of time. All right. Um, I spent my working life accumulating uh, traditional 401k, not Roth, converted it to an IRA. Okay. Now I'm almost as exclusively in a traditional IRA. What are the advantages? I mean, I understand I would pay the taxes right. now. It would grow tax-free, but uh, why do I want to pay all those taxes now and do a conversion? You probably don't. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's the answer. Is For most people, you'd say, David, probably your initial blush is you're probably not going to want to. Well, but. especially not all at once. So I think a lot of times, usually when I get this question, people think of it as, do I convert my entire balance? Or at least a lot of times, that's what I get. If anything, what you want to look at is, if there are going to be years early in retirement, and this is fairly a fairly common scenario, where your income is going to be a lot lower than it is not just now, but lower than it will be in the future. And that happens typically when people have money um, outside of retirement accounts, like a taxable brokerage account that you can withdraw from, and you haven't claimed Social Security yet. So your income can be super low at first. Um, in those years, you can convert at really low marginal tax brackets. And, and when then, you say income, you mean your taxable income. You, you, may right. have, you may have a handsome income, but it's, not, it's not all that taxable. Yeah, exactly. So your taxable income's low. Um, if it's lower than what it will be in the future when you would withdraw the money from your IRA, theoretically, if you didn't convert, then that would be a good time to do it. So just putting numbers on it, like if you were able to convert money at the 12% marginal tax bracket now, but if you didn't do that and you looked into the future, you might get tripped into the 22% because you have big required minimum distributions 20 years down the road. Then that's a scenario where you might consider a conversion. And I should probably say here, too, always consult a CPA on anything tax-related uh, before you do it. But um, So wrapping that up or summarizing, for most people, uh, there's probably not a super compelling reason to convert, but there are certain certain instances primarily when your income is your taxable income is 
really low when you should look at it and say, does it make sense to convert at least a portion of my traditional IRA and The other thing I want to add to that is if you're going to do that, you also want to have the, um, the be able to pay the tax separately out of right. another fund and not take it out of that amount that you're rolling in, or converting into the Roth. Uh, but this is something that we monitor and we look out over the years. And what we're always trying to do is say, hey, are we, is there any reason to take advantage of either a Roth conversion? And if not a Roth conversion, how about if they have a taxable account with built-in long-term capital gains? Maybe we should harvest long-term capital gains at a 0% rate. So I think in summary, Dave, you'd say chances are you're going to find that you're not, they're not going to be that attractive, but you may have that situation. And mainly the situation is people that have low taxable income on the front end of retirement. That typically comes from people that have not taken Social Security yet, and they have this fund that's a taxable, non-tax privileged account that they can kind of live out of, keeping that taxable income down. Many times there's some favorable things to do from a conversion standpoint. Right. It's just not easy for people to do that analysis on their own because you have to project your portfolio balance and required minimum distributions in the future. And we don't really know what tax rates are going to be, so you kind of have to base it on tax brackets now and make educated guesses. And that's why I always think when it comes to like a Roth conversion analysis, it's a really good idea to get a professional's help, even if that's uh, probably a CPA, and say, here's what I'm thinking about doing. Let's make sure, <laughs> sure that there aren't any unintended consequences. Because like if people have claimed Social Security, if their taxable income's particularly low, it might not be taxable now. But if you convert it, it might make your Social Security taxable. So now, even though you you were you thought you were in a low tax bracket, you're paying extra. It's like your marginal tax rate on additional income becomes higher because you're causing that Social Security to become taxable. So you just have to be careful with this stuff. Is really what I'm saying. I, I think all, if people ought to inquire about it, yeah, and, and, and at least put it on the box that needs to be checked. Should I or should I not do look at Roth conversion potential? and then have somebody guide you through that. But it has to be someone who can simulate many years into the future, which is not predicting what it's going to be, but you're going to do thousands of simulations that give you a range of the benefit by whether you convert or not. It's not going to be a yes or no. It's it's probably going to end up being, well, 75% of the time you're going to be better off and 25% of the time you wish you wouldn't, or something like that. Thank you very much. All right. I hope that helps. Yes. All right. Well, that was a good call. I think it seems like any we're in the retirement planning business, so, of course, we naturally think in those terms on the front end of a relationship. That's one of the things we're always testing for because it, ultimately it's the, the return you're after is the highest after tax, after inflation return. Taxation retirement is a really important function, probably overplayed a little bit by the industry, uh, but there's a lot of things you sometimes there are a number of things you can do to really not only minimize taxes but increase your wealth at the same time and they, they're not always one in the same you, you could do a lot of things that reduce your future taxes but they also reduce your future wealth speaking of retirement so uh, this there was a secure act that was uh, sailed through the house that was back in may um, months later progress is the side of us uh, on that side of Congress is still elusive. The main goal, expand access to retirement savings. So this is something I want to talk about, but here's the main thing, guys. Allow small employers to band together to offer 401k plans. 401k plans are kind of expensive when you're a small company, so it is thought as a way if we could band together a bunch of them, get that purchasing power. Uh, give part-time workers access to retirement plans. Take away the 70 and a half age limit for individual retirement account contributions, because now if if you're 70 and a half, you can, you can no longer put money in uh, individual retirement account and raise the required minimum distribution age to 72 from 70 and a half. But this is one that I think people won't like if it is part of it. And I think it will be uh, put a 10 year time limit on how long a non-spouse beneficiaries can stretch out the inherited IRA. Right now, if you inherit an IRA and you're a non-spouse, non-spouse say you're a child, you get to do it based essentially over your life expectancy, which is a much lower, uh, you know, withdrawal required from uh, from an IRA, uh, inherited IRA, than a ten-year period. So that could have some significant impacts. Uh, then, of course, they're going to look at Social Security Act, twenty-one hundred Act, Fred. 
you know, I could I could see it coming. I yeah. could see what's coming. You know, it, it's supposed to run out the Social Security trust fund by twenty thirty five, and it doesn't mean there's no money. It just means that benefits would probably be cut by eighty percent. I mean, by twenty percent, so <clears throat> you get eighty percent of promised benefits. Uh, I guess basically, uh, it also would give those who uh, who are going to get a benefit a minimum benefit would be. 25% more than the poverty line, so 25% above the poverty line. But here's what's really coming, and this is what people ought to think about. Uh, costs, uh, calls for raising payroll taxes on wages over 400000 right now, the upper limit. Once you go above 132900 you're no longer taxed on your wages from Social Security. I look for that to be somewhat part of this in some yeah. format. What do you think, Fred? Uh, first of all, I, I think that <clears throat> Even though the law says that uh, uh, they have to cut benefits to match the uh, the shortfall, that's never going to happen. So I think that the eighty uh, percent probably will never never occur. I agree. They, they'll go back and change it somehow. So that's one thing. But uh, you know, beyond that, Social Security is just a very very complex kind of thing. And, we, uh, and you know, I, I think that uh, there probably will be changes, but. What you're talking about it would be a huge tax increase for people who are earning uh, huge. a 15 percent uh, percentage point tax increase if you combine the employer and the employee for people who are having wage income, and you put that on top of a, a you know five seven eight percent uh, state rate and right. then a marginal rate at the federal level of 40 percent, you got uh, well pretty above, hefty uh, above 50 percent. So. They'll probably back into it some way and not not uh, go full force right. Phase it in. Yeah. They're even talking about increasing the Social Security tax from six point two percent to I think seven point four. Yeah, uh, yeah seven point four. That's a gradual phase in right. from twenty twenty. This is what they're talking yeah. about. It's not. It's not been yeah. decided, but this is. But what uh, Social Security has kind of run out of its uh, easy options. Uh, when it started, it was really easy to increase benefits because most people. Uh, hadn't worked very long under Social Security. They were getting a huge return for their contributions. That's gone now. Everyone who's receiving, uh, who's retired now or retiring now has paid during their whole life. Uh, raising rates was easy. It started at a really low rate. Now we're up to a combined rate of uh, about 15%, so that's not easy to raise anymore. Is the toughest part political? Yeah, and, the political. and the other problem is that uh, uh, instead of having uh, several workers for retiree, that's going to be reduced substantially. So all the things are working against Social Security in terms of the easy solution. So, again, uh, raising the rate might be a possibility, but I don't think that's going to happen well, anytime soon. Okay. But then we have this other – instead of looking for solutions, uh, most of the candidates now are, are talking about increasing benefits. So the, the, the lack of funding has not uh, stopped them from, from talking about expanding benefits. Fractured fairy tales. That's right. a, you know, politicians on both sides. They just promise everybody everything, and we'll worry about the bill when we're dead and gone. Guys, I want to shift to long-term care. Uh, I had some other things on here, but I think this is an important one. And what kind of triggered the conversation today was over the past just month, we've probably had four or five clients that have gotten an additional increase after one or two prior increases for their long-term care they bought years ago. And we're having to do an awful lot of analysis on does it make sense to take the reduction in, for example, one of the options is typically you can take a reduction of the inflation benefit, uh, you can cut your benefit, and it really takes quite a bit of analysis to do that. But I want to cover this because I also read something, and it wasn't part of our notes today, but I just read a study, and I don't have it in front of me, but it said, actually, I used to say that running out of money before people run out of life in retirement was always the number one worry. Turns out healthcare now is, and healthcare is kind of, we also have to bring in long-term care. And it really is, am I going to lose my financial independence and dignity due to a health care uh, problem or a long-term care problem? But So we're going to cover long-term care, Dave. So it's a big problem for retirees when we're preparing. You know, it's, the front end, it's on the front end of every meeting we have with clients. Okay, do you have long-term care insurance? If the answer is no, okay, then we're going to earmark in, as part of this plan. We're going to earmark uh, that as a goal to make sure that we have some type of coverage, even though we're self-insuring it, so to speak. So let's talk about the options. Can you just kind of lay out the options as you see it for people heading into retirement that are thinking about long-term care issues? Yeah, it's really fairly simple. So I always just distill it down to three primary options. The first one that everyone thinks about is 
insurance. So you can buy long-term care insurance, and that will fund your expenses in a long-term care facility up to the benefits that you pay for, basically. Um, and that's just that's your first option. Um, but the option that I think people don't think about is it's not just buy insurance or don't buy insurance. It's, okay, well, you can buy insurance or you can self-fund those expenses by essentially the way I think of it is, well, you could have just taken the premiums that you're paying and insurance premiums and invested them or the, or just take a lump sum of money and set it aside for that purpose. And then you're going to have this big bucket of money uh, by the time you have long-term care expenses to help fund it. And then the third option is to ignore both of those and then rely on Medicaid. And there are some downsides to doing that, but that's one of those those options where it's some people don't have a choice. So is that where it comes down to many times when you're thinking through this is where you fall on the income spectrum and like your your net worth and, and where you fall in that spectrum? Yeah, that's definitely a big influencer. So that's the way I organized. I wrote a blog post about this, and that's the way I organized it was right off the bat, let's get the two obvious ones kind of out of the way. The first obvious one is if you have a low income or a low net worth, you probably can't afford long-term care insurance that provides a material amount of benefits. And when I say low, the, the example I used is, okay, if you're living on thirty dollars or $40,000 a year, to buy a long-term care insurance policy for both spouses that actually covers like three to five years in a nursing home at like full cost is going to cost you several thousand dollars. So now Each. you just, uh, well, probably like four or five a piece, yeah, uh, I mean. you know. So you're looking at several thousand dollars combined, uh, seven, eight thousand, nine thousand dollars right. combined, depending on the. It, it depends on the exact benefits of the Got policy. It. Well, you just significantly cut into your lifestyle. I mean, that's that's the type of you can call it a pay cut or income decrease that most people just can't make. It's just not even an option. And then if you you know if you have a hundred thousand dollars or a couple hundred thousand dollars in assets, trying to set that money aside or use it to buy insurance, it's really just not enough um, unless you just don't need that money at all. So for people who are relying, who are retired, if they had a couple hundred thousand dollars to really fund material long-term care expenses, it's like okay, well you can't really touch that money <laughs> until you you know it's right. like you it's have to set earmarked. that full amount. And and most people just can't afford to do that. So these are the type of people where it's your default option is relying on Medicaid. And there are some downsides to that, like you're limited in terms of which facilities you can go into. And some of the facilities have a limited, limited number of beds for Medicaid recipients cause, or because they don't get basically as much money from Medicaid as they do from the people who are paying out of pocket or from insurance. So... Um, I like to think of that primarily as a, a last resort, but it is an unfortunate reality that most people end up relying on Medicaid for their long-term care. And what about the other end of the spectrum? Okay, now the high net worth person, and then we'll get to the kind of the people in the middle where they're, that's where it gets difficult. Right. So if you look at someone who has a couple hundred thousand dollars of income in retirement or they have uh, you know a portfolio of four or five million dollars, now you're looking at the type of income and net worth where you can basically fund even the most expensive types of long-term care almost in perpetuity. Because if you look even at home health care around here, it's what, a couple hundred thousand bucks a year, isn't that? For, for 24-7 care. Right. Probably somewhere in that. And it can be less if, you're, if you're, it's not 24-7, but you know, you start looking at a, a four or five million dollar portfolio, you can, you can fund that all for a lot of years. Sure. And less returns are really, really horrible. So, um, these are the type of people where you can easily afford to self-fund. And then the only caveat to that is if it just makes you feel better to have insurance, you're also at the level of wealth where you can kind of just do what feels best because you can easily pay for really good insurance too. You just don't need to do it. And what about the people squeezed in the middle? So these are the people where I like to say you should seriously consider the pros and cons of insurance versus self-funding long-term care expenses. And and this is something that I don't think people talk about nearly enough. I do think people phrase it as, you either buy insurance or you just ignore the problem. It's like those are not the two alternatives. You you can buy insurance or you can try to self-fund it by setting money aside specifically for that purpose. And so what I did is I listed some of the pros and cons of each option. So the first consideration, I think, is costs. Obviously, you want to know, well, how much is each option going to cost me? And what I've found doing plans, and I'm not going to even provide the specific numbers. You can right. see that in my article. But the costs are pretty comparable. So the, how much 
basically the premiums that you would have to pay for a good long-term care policy is about how much money you would have to set aside each year to fund that an equivalent amount of long-term care expenses on your own if you just set that money aside and invested it in a reasonable investment. And that's somebody on the front end of retirement who might be somewhere around 60-ish. Right. It, and it kind of... That may live but it one of maybe their But it kind of because okay. if you, the earlier you start, the lower your premiums are going to be, but Got the less it. money you'd have to invest. Right. The later you started, your premiums are going to be really high, or you're going to have to set aside a lot Just of money. Just as if you were buying premiums, it, the, the later you wait to earmark money, the more money you have to earmark. Right. So usually, like I said, the costs are pretty comparable. Now, I think a big consideration for people is that the costs of long-term care insurance are not guaranteed. And I think that's what you were talking about when right. you introduced this is we frequently get clients coming into our office saying, I got a notice again from my long-term care insurance company that my premiums are going to increase substantially. Sometimes or I double. Cut my, uh, cut my benefit or cut my inflation rider or some combination of these. Right. And that really bothers people because we're talking about thousands of dollars a lot of times per year in premium increases. And it's something that you just, if you're, it's not me saying you shouldn't buy insurance for this reason. It's just something when you buy it, you need to know that that's a possibility and be okay with that possibility and be able to fund higher premiums potentially. Is there a thought that the companies today are better at pricing these things? And so maybe people buying a policy today, maybe may not have as many shocks or, or any shocks in the future. Well, yeah, I mean, everything I read basically says that. So the the reason that they've had to ha- increase premiums so much is they overestimated how many people would lapse on their policies. So people who pay in for a little while and then just drop the policy, and then it's kind of like the insurance company got free money. Um, they they overestimated the people who lap who would lapse. So more people are just sticking with their policies, and then they also didn't necessarily account for the fact that interest rates are going to be at extreme lows as right. they have been for the last several years. Okay. You would think now their actuaries would account for those things. They've adjusted their assumptions. So hopefully this is less of an issue going forward. Are there, are there still many providers? Uh, uh, some people withdraw from the... It's, it's fewer and fewer. Like we, so we just had a, a client that I was talking to. He's actually in a long-term care facility now. Um, and I was talking to his daughter. And the policy that they have is through a company that they don't issue new policies, for example. And yeah, the number of companies that are issuing long-term care shrunk has, has shrunk significantly. There's a handful at best. Yep. Um, so then the second consideration I talk about is guaranteed versus non-guaranteed coverage amount. So when you think of insurance, you're paying your premiums, and then in exchange for that, you're getting a certain amount of insurance benefits. Basically, it's going to be a certain amount per month up to a lifetime maximum. So it might be, okay, you get... Uh, three three years up to three years at you know ninety thousand a year or whatever it is. Usually they they do a daily benefit right. amount, but it kind of works out that way. So let's just say okay, we know for a fact I've got a lifetime max of three hundred thousand of benefits. I'm just pulling a number right. out of my head. If you take the self funding route, you know I mentioned the cost of self funding that I calculate is somewhat right. comparable. Well, that's based on a really high likelihood of success, basically using what our Monte Carlo simulation software. But that's not like a guarantee because right. it, it's the amount of money that you end up with set aside for insurance or for long-term care expenses when you need it is going to depend a lot on the investment returns that you of earn. Of course. And when we're dealing even with 15, 20-year periods for a typical retiree, maybe a little longer, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty around investment returns, and the amount of money that you have available to fund long-term care expenses could be very different if you get a good draw versus a bad draw in terms of investment returns. And that uncertainty really bothers some people. So I think this gets down to a psychological preference. Some people prefer guarantees. That gives them comfort. Some people prefer the fact that, well, there's more upside potential with self-funding, and I'm willing to put up with the basically fluctuation and uncertainty involved in self-funding in exchange for that potential upside. Okay, then what about this use it or lose it? We hear a lot of people kind of wrestle with that. Well, but Fred just talked about it. We're kind of glad when we our house doesn't burn down and we, we gladly pay those premiums. It's a little different, more, different when it comes to the psychology around long-term care, isn't it? 
Yeah, I think that's one of the things people really don't like about traditional long-term care insurance, and I think it's because it's so expensive. So you you think about, okay, I'm paying several thousand dollars a year in long-term care insurance premiums, and then if I don't need it or if I die during the elimination period, which I can kind of talk about, but and I don't get any benefits in return, well, that just really bothers people because that's hundreds of thousands of dollars that could have gone to their children or wherever they wanted their money to go. It's essentially wasted money. And as as Dr. Gertz mentioned, it's like I don't really see that as necessarily a problem because that's how a lot of types of insurance work. It's like really that's kind of the best case scenario because you didn't have your health decline and ha- right. need to go into a long-term you buy life care. insurance so you don't die. That's the- <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, most types of or like your example, homeowners insurance, you really you want those premiums to be wasted. You don't want your house to burn down. Um, but that does really bother people, and that's one of the major advantages that I see of self-funding is if you set this money aside for long-term care expenses, but then you don't end up having long-term care expenses, well, then that money can go to your children or wherever or your heirs, just wherever your you know your will or your trust says your money is going to go. So I think that's a major consideration for people, and again, that's more of a psychological consideration. Well, you mentioned you prefer. You mentioned the coverage doesn't kick in right away either, and that that's kind of an issue, a side issue as well, isn't it? Right. So that's that's another consideration with insurance is just some of the, I don't, I guess you can call it like limitations to it. Um, the first one, and I think the biggest consideration is almost all insurance has. Long-term care insurance has what's called an elimination period, and that's a period of time where you have to cover your own costs before the policy starts paying benefits. And they can range in, in duration, but the most common one's 90 days. So it is it does happen, and we had a client actually where he went into a long-term care facility and he died before the elimination period was up, so his long-term care insurance was basically wasted even though he did have some long-term care expenses. So that's something that you know people need to be aware of. And then there also are issues sometimes with daily benefit caps or monthly benefit caps, particularly daily, where if you have a lot of, you know, expensive treatment on a single day and you're capped at, you know, $250 a day, but your expenses were 500 you might not be fully reimbursed. Um, so there are some just, I guess, quirks of dealing with insurance and getting your benefits that you don't have to deal with if you self-fund. You've always said they they should have you should be able to pick a one or a two year elimination period, and then you know. And I think maybe that will be one of the hybrid solutions. What about protecting assets from Medicare spend down requirements? I, Ryan, you've written quite a bit about this. We have about four or five minutes here. Maybe you can just kind of give us your th- thoughts, put it all together a little sure. bit. Sure. So <clears throat> for somebody who is considering or has no other option but to go on to Medicaid, there is a requirement to spend down your money, and it's quite considerable. So you, as a single person going in to potentially a Medicaid facility, you have to spend down your assets to $2,000. So it's it's very, very low. Uh, if you're a dual applicant, you're married, and both spouses are going in together, it's 3000 so you get a slight uptick. But the one thing that I think is good to know is for folks who are uh, a married couple in this instance and only one's going into a facility for a nursing home through Medicaid, again, uh, the spouse who is the non-applicant, who is otherwise called the community spouse, they can keep about $110,000 of assets, uh, even though the the one spouse who's going in would normally only be able to keep 2000 So it's, it's good to know that that's the Illinois state amount. It's different by state. Um, but it's good to know that if you only have one spouse going in, you don't have to all of a sudden live in the poverty line of, of $2,000. Okay, but you're still pretty – you can see it from there. You, you can see it. It's not too far out, and you you know yeah. – Would it be fair to say, guys, both of you, uh, this part of this analysis takes the psychological and emotional component into – if you're doing it properly, you have to take that into account with the client? I think so, and I, I think a lot of these issues do have a psychological component to it. So preference, like how much does use it or lose it bother you? How much does uh, f- <coughs> fluctuation of your portfolio balance bother you and not having this guaranteed insurance? And some people just feel better just knowing that they have insurance. Um, a, a lot of these things you do have to consider your psychological preference. And then one other um, consideration I was going to mention because I was talking to a client recently it was actually the, the uh, child of the client whose right. parent is in the n- nursing home now. And they had a nightmare experience getting their uh, policy to actually, or their insurance company to actually pay benefits. So one of the, the pot- 
potential downsides, depending on the scenario and the company, is just dealing with the insurance company, getting them to pay the benefits. So this particular client was in and out of a facility, uh, getting kind of like rehab care. And for some reason, that really messed with like qualifying for the elimination period and whatever. And I, she just said it was an absolute nightmare trying to get them to pay benefits. They finally did. But her comment was it was the reason that she and her husband chose not to purchase long-term care insurance and they chose to self-fund. Now, she said they do have friends who had no issues with it. So it's going to depend, but it's just something I think people don't always consider. So you might want to have a strong advocate if, if you're considering the long-term care option to potentially go to bat for you with the insurance company. So you, exactly. want a, you want a very strong agent in that one. Well, to me, to sum up the long-term care thing, uh, the most important thing is to build a plan for how you'll handle those potential long-term care issues. Uh, I think you do that well in advance, and I think that's what you're talking about your advisor saying, hey, there's this one thing keeping me up between 1 and 3 in the morning. We've seen friends that had these you know, experiences, and we somehow want to know that we yeah. have some or complete protection against that and that can help you live the final years this is my experience after 35 years i get to see people <laughs> who retire peacefully uh, through all phases at least financially we all have families so it can't be completely peaceful uh <laughs> but the final years of your life you just really never want to worry about your financial independence and dignity you don't want to be even in america you don't want to be poor and old uh it's not a good combination and it takes planning and it planning takes a planner and so it doesn't have to be us but i think if I could wave a magic wand, everybody would be mandated to see some sort of a, some sort of financial planner and retirement planner. It just should be part of our uh, system uh, in place. So I won't pontificate on that any longer. But a lot of these issues can be dealt with with proper planning. Well, Fred, sorry uh, you got a lot of the front end, but uh, <laughs> Dave hogged the rest of the show, things, yeah. Dr. Fred. And Ryan, thanks for uh, showing up as well and t participating in the show. Well, we'll be back in two weeks with Paul Rudy's On the Money glad again to be voted number one investment firm in Central Illinois uh, People's Choice Awards. We'll see you in two weeks. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.